I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy for our session today. 1 Timothy, we're still running on the subject of faith. We want to grow in faith. We want to develop faith. We want to have a Bible faith, not a feigned faith, but as we saw in 1 Timothy 1.5, we want a faith that is unfeigned. Now that word is not a word that people recognize in everyday English, feigned or unfeigned. It simply means an unfeigned faith means one that's not hypocritical, one that's not putting a mask on, one that's not pretending to be something that it really isn't. But I want you to go down to verse 19 of chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 19. Well, let's go back to verse 18 where Paul is giving a charge to Timothy. He's given Timothy an assignment. And I'll tell you in a second what that assignment is. But this charge I commit unto you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies that, which went on before on you, that you by them might war a good warfare. So there is a place in the New Testament for prophetic words to encourage and to help you fulfill what God has asked you to do. But verse 19, as you do this, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. That's a strong word. Shipwreck. Which some having put away concerning faith have ended up in disaster, ended up in shipwreck. Timothy is in the city of Ephesus. He has been directed by Paul the Apostle to spend some time there in Ephesus because basically speaking, the church has got itself in a mess. It got itself in a mess through taking on some wrong teaching and unfortunately, it seems as if most of the wrong teaching in fulfillment of what Paul foresaw back in Acts chapter 20 when he called for the elders of the church to come together not knowing that he himself would ever get to Ephesus again. He was in a place called Miletus in Acts 20. Asked all the elders from the church at Ephesus to meet him there where he gave them a, a talk and a sharing of a burden of the Holy Spirit. And he said, guard the church of God over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Make sure you feed the flock because he has purchased this flock with his own precious blood. But he says, there's going to come a problem by the Spirit of God. There's going to come a problem into this Ephesian church. And that is some of you elders are going to take the church astray. And therefore, you need to take heed to watch over your own hearts so that you don't unwittingly become the person that is going to end up taking this church down some wrong paths. He prophesied that in Acts chapter 20, and unfortunately it did come to pass. 
And there have been elders that have strayed away from the faith in the city of Ephesus. And now Paul has left Timothy there to bring correction to the problem. So when you read 1 Timothy, that's the background. It helps you to understand the content and the context in which this epistle is gone. And so if you ever wonder why 1 Timothy says so much about qualification of leadership and qualification of elders, it's because it's the elders, unfortunately, who have gone astray and led this church some down some garden paths and made some error. The false teaching of these elders, as you would read through 1 Timothy, has led to needless speculation ended up in their Bibles chasing fables and endless genealogies, which only gave questions to doubtful questions and other speculations, none of which was edifying. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, I besought you to abide or stay there at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they don't teach any other doctrine. Don't get involved in these doctrinal speculations going out there. Verse 4 specifically, he identifies some of them. Don't be following after things that are fables and endless genealogies, which all they do is minister questions. Now listen to this phrase, rather than godly edifying. That's going to be an important phrase for us tonight. Rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do you. If I could translate that into modern English for you out of the Greek, it's saying that the progress of the work of God happens by faith, not by getting involved in doctrinal hair-splitting over genealogies and fables and all these kinds of speculative type of teaching No, it's faith that is going to take the church forward. Don't get sidetracked into some of this teaching that just genders speculations and questions. You're going to hear a phrase in what's called the pastoral epistles. And when you hear anyone say the pastoral epistles, that means 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those three epistles are known as the pastoral epistles. Epistles because they were written to Timothy and to Titus to correct problems going on in churches. A pastor's oversight in bringing correction. And one of the things you're going to see very frequently is this phrase, sound doctrine. I'll just show you where they are. Chapter 6. And verse number 3. And I want us to pay attention to it so that you catch the heart of what is being shared here. In chapter 6 and verse number 3. If any man teaches otherwise, and the teaching is not about wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if it's not according to the doctrine, a doctrine which is according to godliness... I want you to hear that phrase, godliness. The teaching which is according to godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 13. 2 Timothy 1.13 Hold fast the form of 
sound words which you have heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4 and verse number 3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, The book of Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9 Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Same chapter, uh, verse number 13. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Titus chapter 2 and verse 2. The older men are to be somber, grave, temperate, sound in their faith. Same chapter, verse 8, talking about young men, that they should have sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. When you see that phrase, sound teaching, teaching according to godliness, sound doctrine, to put it in better English, it would be, say, healthy teaching. Not speculative things, but healthy teaching. It is the opposite of diseased teaching. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 17... 2 Timothy 2.17, it says, And their word, well, let me go back to verse number 15. Timothy, you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Verse 16, stay away from profane and vain babblings. In other words, the speculative reading of the scripture, because that only increases unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat like a cancer, or canker, old King James, like a cancer. In other words, speculative teaching that gets out there on the edge only is like a cancer, and it spreads like gangrene, and it's not healthy stuff. And the elders were getting into not healthy type of teaching. Their teaching was, instead of being in sound godliness, they were checking out special esoteric meanings in in lists of genealogies and coming up with all of this kind of stuff. And Paul says, you have just led the congregation in Ephesus astray. The idea is this. Proper teaching or the proper receiving of faith, should do the following. It should produce love in a pure heart. It should produce a good conscience. It should produce a correct belief system that ends up with proper conduct and good works. And if the teaching doesn't produce that, If it doesn't produce love out of a pure heart, if it doesn't produce a good conscience, if it doesn't produce good works and a godly lifestyle, then Paul would say it's 
it's cancerous type of teaching is not healthy stuff and it's just leading you all over the place and you're missing the point the point is faith always produces godly living and if what you're hearing is not producing godly living then it's a disease to the body of Christ strong words isn't it strong words but that's what he's saying in here diseased teaching leads to controversy it leads to argumentation it leads to arrogance it leads to abusiveness and it leads to strife and that's exactly what it says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 4. This diseased teaching, if it's not according to godliness, it fosters pride. The person knows nothing. He's doting about questions and strife of words. And out of this comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, and on and on it goes. Now what's interesting, in 1 Timothy, Paul is going to identify five ways in which the church gets off track in the name of faith. It's interesting. He's going to identify five ways where the teaching becomes speculation rather than sound concerning faith. If you go to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. It says, now the end of the commandment, the goal of teaching, the purpose of the word of God is as follows. Love out of a pure heart. Number two, a good conscience. Number three, unfeigned faith. All teaching should produce that. Love out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unfeigned faith. Verse number 6, these false teachers, these elders that have erred, it says, from which, having, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. That word swerved is interesting. That means you took a corner too fast. It means you got off track. Has swerved, having turned aside. It means they have lost the purpose of the teaching. They have become unfocused. They have been misdirected and they missed the point. Paul uses this term to swerve or turn aside consistently in the pastoral epistles to explain getting off track concerning faith. You will find him using the term in 1 Timothy 6.21. People have deviated from the truth. You find him using it again in 2 Timothy 2.18. They have turned aside away from the true faith in the name of other things. The result is that they turn aside to other goals except the goal of God. Now what's the goal of God? Why does he give you faith? What's the purpose of hearing the word of God? What's the purpose? To produce love in a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unfeigned faith. And that has, unfortunately for other people, has not become the goal of preaching, not become the goal 
of teaching. Other goals have come into play in the church. Some of those goals are we're going to say is I'm going to teach you through the Word of God about spiritual warfare. Or I'm going to teach you from the Word of God about how to get rich. Or I'm going to teach you from the Word of God how, 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 how. And you've missed the point. Paul says if it doesn't lead to love out of a pure heart, if the goal is not a good conscience, and the goal is not a true faith that leads to godliness, the teaching is off rail. That's what he says. Powerful stuff. Not necessarily that people have willfully deserted the truth as much as they've lost focus and they've strayed from the main point. That's what he's all about in chapter 1 and verse 5. Forgive me for the repetition, but let me say it again. True faith. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. The goal of hearing the word of God is an inward cleansing of the heart that enables you to process God's laws internally as a principle of life. The purpose of the word of God is not to make you rich. The purpose of the word of God is to make you godly. All right? The purpose of the Word of God is to so you hear God and it gets internalized in your heart, changes your heart, and enables you to live out godliness and be responsible. That is the goal. And any time a teaching gives you any other goal, it is off the mark. It becomes a disease to the body of Christ. Now we start in chapter 1 verse 19. It says you are to have faith, hold faith, and a good conscience. Let me define for you in the pastoral epistles when Paul uses the word conscience what he means. Faith is the posture of trust that gives us a relationship with God. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. But conscience, when Paul uses the word conscience in the pastoral epistles, it refers to the ability to move from the knowledge of the truth so that it produces corresponding appropriate conduct. Conscience is the ability to translate the truth into responsible living. So whenever you see Paul use the word conscience in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that's what he's talking about. It's the ability to move from knowledge of the truth and translate that into responsible, godly living. That's how the Holy Spirit conforms our behavior so that our behavior agrees with what we believe. Alright? That's what he's after. Now he's saying in verse 19, some of people have put it away. And when they have not pursued responsible, godly living as the goal, and they've made something else the goal, it says they end up in shipwreck. Shipwreck. I'll ask you a question. Why do you think Paul uses the word shipwreck? When I say shipwreck, what do you envision? Can't 
doesn't come back together again. Complete destruction. What Paul is trying to impress in our minds is the absolute catastrophic scale of damage that incurs when people get off the track and they make the church all about something else besides righteousness and godly living. The result is shipwreck. If you want a good picture of shipwreck, read Acts chapter 27, where it describes in detail a shipwreck that Paul the Apostle himself was on. As a matter of fact, when he wrote 2 Timothy, that shipwreck was past tense. Maybe he had that in mind. I don't know. But he had suffered a shipwreck for the Lord. He knew what it was like to go through shipwreck. And he says, and that's exactly what happens to the church and what happens to believers when they make something else the goal instead of godliness and righteous living. Ends up in shipwreck. What happens is people make a choice not to translate the word of God, into godly living. And they allow the Christian life to be consumed with other desires. Paul says, you put away your conscience. That means you're just not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. The surest way of maintaining a pure faith is to make sure you maintain a tender conscience. The surest way of keeping your faith pure is making sure you keep yourself a tender conscience. What is it that's shipwrecked? Your testimony is shipwrecked. Your personal life is shipwrecked. And quite possibly the church gets shipwrecked in the process. The church has a bad reputation. The, God has a bad, the gospel has a bad reputation. And people's personal lives end up in shipwreck. I'm sure that you and I both know people that started out And they pursued some other goal besides godliness and responsible living. And their lives have ended up in shipwreck. I'm sure both you and I know people have become completely disillusioned with the Lord. Disillusioned with church. Disillusioned with Christian faith altogether. Who years ago, you can remember, they were at every meeting. They were red hot. They gave. They were supportive. They were on the front. They were excited. They're going rah, rah, rah. And they're pursuing faith. And they were pursuing this. And they're pursuing that. And they went at it for years. And now they can't even get out of bed. They go to church and they've given up. Why? Because they've ended up in shipwreck. Because they were pursuing a goal besides godliness. Five ways this can happen according to 1 Timothy. In chapter 4, verse number 1, Paul has some sort of a prophetic burden to the church. And this is why he sent Timothy to bring the correction to the church. He has a prophetic burden in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, now the Spirit is speaking expressly. Now, I don't know if that means there was a prophecy, there was, did a prophet speak, or was it just an inner witness burning in his heart? We don't know, but somehow the Holy Spirit was bearing a very strong, powerful witness that in the latter times, some people are going to depart from the faith. They're going to depart from the faith. They have been giving heed. Notice it says giving heed 
to seducing spirits. You can four one if you just look at one four, it uses that phrase as well. Don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Don't give heed to it. In chapter four, verse one, the problem was some people were giving heed. They were giving heed to seducing spirits, fables and endless speculations. Listen carefully. In other words, they allowed themselves to be devoted to other goals other than the development of godliness and character. They became committed to other goals. Behind all of this was demonic power, for sure. Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 says, Behind the scenes, the enemy of our souls takes advantage of wrong desires that we might have and can really manipulate if we have wrong goals and wrong desires. In chapter 3, talking about elders and deacons and so forth in this chapter, it says in verse number 6 that don't have a novice because there's a danger of beginners and novices is that they end up being lifted up with pride and they fall into the condemnation of the devil. And therefore, before you appoint someone or recognize, make sure that he must have a good report to outsiders, to people who don't belong to the church. They have to be looked at by an unbelieving community and say, that's a good man. So if we don't pay our bills on time, we don't have a good report to the community, we are shaming the gospel. But it says, fall into the condemnation of the devil. So there's some sort of of warfare going on here. The same truth is in chapter 5 and verse number 15. It says, for some are already turned aside. See that word swerve? Get misdirected. Some are already swerved aside after Satan. Behind the scenes, the enemy takes advantage of wrong desires when Something other than godliness has become our goal and our desire. Well, would you like to hear the five ways that happens? Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, I began to read. Here's one way where it gets mister, people get misdirected. Chapter 4, 1. Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith... Why? By giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, their own conscience is seared with a hot iron. Remember what we said conscience is? Conscience is the ability to translate what you know into godly living. And here we've got teachers who have lost touch with the conscience. They have replaced it with something else. And some of the doctrines they were teaching, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to receive a thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. I find it interesting when it says they give heed to seducing spirits and doctrine of devils. This is an indirect implication of this scripture. 
But when people give undue concern to the demonic, you're on the wrong track. When there's teaching with his undue concern on the demonic, you're on the wrong track. There are some moves of God, some churches, some, you know, where the emphasis is spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare. And you create doctrines of spiritual warfare on obscure passages from Daniel and obscure passages from Jude and, and, and all of these things. And, and your whole mind goes warfare, warfare, warfare all the time. You're on the wrong track. I don't deny there's principalities and powers. But when that becomes an obsession... When it becomes to shadow everything that the church stands for, you're on the wrong track. You're off the you're off the rails. It's unhealthy. You see, I have a problem, and that problem is I just happen to believe that God is in control. I believe that He is in absolute control. And when this speculative teaching comes across that says that God gave power to Adam and through his sin Adam forfeited that power and handed it over to the devil and now the devil has a legal right to run this world because the Bible calls him the God of this world and the prince of this world as if the devil has the sovereign ability to rule. No, he does not. God sets up nations as he sees fit. He puts down nations as he sees fit. Just because Paul refers to him as the God of this world doesn't make him God. Paul the Apostle, who called the devil the God of this world, also called your belly your God. Who make gods out of their bellies. Does that mean your belly rules the world? Or does it just mean it's what you worship? (laughs) does it simply mean is that what you worship is that giving the devil sovereign power over the world no it just means inadvertently the world worships him they don't even know they're doing it when it calls on the prince of the world does that give him sovereign ability to set up nations as he sees fit absolutely not The only way Satan controls anybody is through deception. If he can get you to think wrong, he can get you to act wrong, believe wrong, and and behave wrong. And if you can think right, you're out of his power. The war is here. Not so much there. It's here. And if you can think properly, you're out of his control. And so I don't have this fear. Well, the devil's lurking around the corner and the devil's going to do this and the devil's going to do that. And if somehow I am in this fight where the devil costs them a whole life. If you want that lifestyle, go for it. No, don't go for it. It's not worth anything. <laughs> don't go for it. I am so pleased that my Jesus is raised from the dead. That he is in authority. And he's in control. And the devil has to work at his permission. And he's in control of history. 
And he's sovereign. And if there's teaching that gives undue overemphasis to spiritual warfare, the church is on the wrong track. You're known for the wrong thing. You should be known for godliness, not principalities and powers in the air. I'm not denying there's principalities and powers. But we need to be known that the gospel has made us into godly people. Otherwise, we're off track. In this chapter 4 and verse 3, forbidding to marry, uh, teaching that is ascetic in nature, that you achieve holiness by asceticism, denying yourself, whether it's sexual relationships within marriage or whether it's certain foods, it's error. Paul says nothing is to be refused. Sanctified by the word and prayer, with gratitude all things are clean. No such thing as unclean food. Maybe unhealthy food, but not unclean in the sense that you can't eat that kind of food because that's unholy food. doesn't work. It's an error. It's an error of seducing spirits, that kind of thinking. You know, the, the issues big time in a lot of Paul's epistles, there are two items that constantly come up in a lot of Paul's epistles. One is about sex, another one's about food. He deals with those topics a lot. Sexual relations and rules about food were hot items of discussion in the early church. People brought all kinds of backgrounds with them into the church. Uh, and there was Jewish sensibilities, there were Jewish tendencies, there was what's called spirit enthusiasm that some people brought in, and there's what I will call over-realized eschatology. And you say, what on earth are you talking about when you use that phrase? It's the teaching that you, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the experience of the presence of God in power, that you already achieved a status like unto angels. 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of angels and of men. And I'm already like the angels because I speak in tongues and angels don't have sex. So neither should we. That became a problem in the Corinthian church. And 1 Corinthians 7 has to deal at length with that very thought that I just gave you. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7. What Paul is probably trying to counteract in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is the teaching of false teachers that went back into the book of Genesis and they were claiming before the fall, before Adam sinned, they were claiming, wrongfully so, but they were claiming there was no sexual relationships before the fall, only after the fall, and obviously before the fall nobody ever ate meat. Nothing died. And therefore, this teaching says, if you really want to get right with God, we have to get back to a pre-fall experience of man. And therefore, no sexual relationships and no eating meat. And Paul said, heresy. Wrong. Believe you me, there are plenty of cults out there, and there are plenty of churches that embrace this kind of thinking. And so Paul would basically reflect back on Genesis chapter 9, I believe it is, that after the flood of Noah, where they were told to eat meat, and they were told to multiply and replenish the earth. And so sex within marriage is proper and it's normal, and eating meat is fine. 
Don't get these false teachers saying you have to get into a a pre-fall type of existence to be spiritual. Endless speculations and it doesn't do you any good. So that's one area where the church was taken off track. A second area is chapter 5, verse number 8. A second way the church gets off track on the subject of godly living and faith. Chapter 5, verse 8. If any man provide not for his own house, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. So, when somebody won't work for a living, he's denied the faith. Strong words, isn't it? That's not responsibleness. Living off other people is not responsible, godly living. You need to provide for yourself and provide for your family. Now the context here in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is looking after widows who can't look after themselves. Needy and destitute widows. Now earlier on in this chapter, there were some widows that didn't need any living, any help, because they were well off. They didn't need any help. There's no need to support people who don't need to be supported. But in the case of widows that are destitute and needy, and you happen to be related to them, if we have really heard from God, if the Word of God is really touching our hearts and really changing our lives, then we would understand that God is a compassionate God. He is a caring God. And He has He's a champion for the underprivileged, and for the poor. And if that doesn't work into our hearts after all the preaching we've heard, then what we've done is the conscience part. We've denied it. We're not listening. We're not listening. We're taking all this word in, but the conscience is not translating into compassion for the underprivileged people of this world, the genuine underprivileged people. Leaving helpless family destitute is opposite of the character of God. Such behavior, Paul says, is a denial that we even know God. It's completely out of sort with his character. This behavior is a denial of the faith. He who says, no, it's not a denial of faith, it's worse than an unbeliever. What Paul is getting at is this. Our faith must appear genuine in the eyes of of an unbelieving world that's watching us. Uh, Let me repeat that. Our faith must appear genuine in the eyes of the unbelieving world that is watching us. Chapter 3, verse number 7. It says, He must have a good report of those on the outside. Chapter 5, verse number 14. I says, I want the younger women to marry, bear children, guide the house, so they give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Chapter 6 and verse 1. As servants that are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. In other words, our Christian life ought to appear spotless before an unbelieving world. Because we are the Bible that they read. And hearing the word of God 
will teach us responsible and godly living. Too many people live by faith. I have traveled enough. I'm called into the ministry. I'm going to live by faith. I've learned what that means. You know what that means? It means my wife goes out to work and pays the bills. The church is not big enough to support me. But I'm going to live by faith. You're not living by faith. You're living by your wife going out to work. And if your wife has to go to work, and here's an opinion of mine coming out, to support you in the ministry, you've got a problem. God bless her, but it's your responsibility. I spend all my day sitting at home, reading my Bible, studying my Bible, and God just provides. He doesn't just provide, your wife does. And I see this abused more than I care to tell you. It's not correct. Refusing to work, to have more time with God, is not living by faith. You're denying it. It's not living by faith. Refusing to work to have more time with God is a disgrace in the eyes of the world. When we started out years ago, I worked two full-time jobs. Pioneered a church, full-time job, and worked a full-time job besides. Until the thing could properly carry us. And you just can't do that. The third way is chapter 5 and verse number 12, where people deny the faith. Chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, having damnation or judgment because they cast off their first faith. The discussion over here is what to do with widows. And in particular, it's the younger widows that are too young to desire to live the rest of their life single. They're still young enough, and I don't know what what age you change, I really don't know, but they yearn for relationship with strong desire, require intimacy, require companionship. And the difficult for many people is that they have legitimate need for companionship and for intimacy. And what people will do is they will sacrifice their relationship with the Lord to allow themselves to get emotionally involved with somebody who will meet their needs. And they sacrifice a relationship with the Lord because they don't want to be lonely. Paul says they've cast off their first faith. In other words, their faith has been displaced because of present human need that they have. A fourth way that people get off the rails is in chapter 5, verse 15, where it says, For some are already turned aside after Satan. Again, the context in this chapter is widows. And this time it's, it's younger widows. And here is the problem with some people, uh, that Paul deals with this. If we support these widows who are young, 
Not only does it cost the church a lot of money, but he says they have too much time on their hands. Now here's an interesting one. Too much time on their hands. If God has blessed you with the gift of free time, if you have a lifestyle that you are blessed with free time, that free time is to be devoted to the work of the Lord. That free time is to be devoted to prayer. That free time is to be devoted to hospitality. That free time is to be devoted to good works. It's not just to fill in your day. And this is what Paul is getting at here because these younger widows who had free time that were looking for financial support from the church, they were abusing the free time and instead of getting involved in godliness and good works and in charity and caring for the poor and devoting yourself to prayer, all the things that working people wish they had the time to do, And when you've been given the gift of free time, you are not to be idle. It is to be put towards godly good works. If you've been given the gift of free time. The problem here in Ephesus is we've got the younger widows who were not using their free time in a godly manner, but they were in the habit of idleness and they were going about house to house and getting into all sorts of speculative conversations. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? And what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And the idle talk and the gossip got going and they actually just promoted the false teachings of the elders and the speculations and Paul has to come down hard on the single widows that are doing this with their free time and he says get yourself married raise children have a good lifestyle because this other way you're actually turning aside after Satan So sexual promiscuity and rejection of godly values causes people to err from the faith. The remedy is godliness. The remedy is godliness. The fifth area um, that Paul talks about is in chapter 6, verse number 10. Chapter 6, verse number 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have, listen to this, erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, verse 20 and 21 of the same chapter, Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust. Avoid profane and vague babblings in opposition of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Verse 10, verse 21, people have erred from the faith. In verse 10, specifically what has caused people to err from the faith is an overemphasis on finances. 
an overemphasis on money. Actually, covetousness, the desire to be rich. The desire to be rich. The people wrongfully taught, and I emphasize wrongfully taught, that it is a godly desire to be wealthy. It is not a godly desire to be wealthy. That is so contradictory to the scriptures that it boggles my mind how any unbiased person could read their Bible and come believing that it's a godly desire to be rich. It boggles my mind how anybody can come to that conclusion. The fact is this, and I'd love to teach a whole seminar a whole day long on this topic of prosperity and so forth, but obviously I can't today. But wealth and the accumulation of money has nothing to do with the subject of faith. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. Nothing to do with spirituality. The abundance of money means you don't, doesn't mean you have great faith. The lack of money doesn't mean you suffer with faith. James would say God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. didn't say the wealthy are rich in faith. He said the poor of the world are rich in faith. The abundance or the lack of it doesn't reflect on the state of your spirituality. It simply doesn't. The fact is this. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, money has a zero value. The kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink. It's not money. It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. Now, the fact is, in the Bible, there were many people who were wealthy. Abraham was wealthy, but did they tell you that he became wealthy by being deceitful? You remember when the king took his wife, not realizing, you know, that it was Abraham's wife, because he said, my sister, remember that? Well, when he came out of that, he came out of there a wealthy man. <laughs> You know, why? Because the king was trying to make appeasement before God for taking this man's wife. And now Abraham became wealthy, but not necessarily by good means. He was wealthy. Job was wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. Sure they were. There's plenty of the people in the Bible who weren't. You know who the most notable person in the Bible who was not wealthy? It's Jesus himself. He had nowhere to lay his head. The prosperity message didn't work for him. So preoccupation with the accumulation of wealth is not a godly pursuit. And when the theme of prosperity becomes what that church is known for, the church is on the rails. It's not what it's about. We should be known that hearing the word of God has produced godly character in us has produced responsibility in us. We pay our bills on time. We're faithful to our word. We do an honest day's work for our boss. We provide for our families. We go the extra mile. Oh, but that's the church that does this, this, and this. We're off the rails. Finances, I believe, that you should have enough for responsible living. You should have enough to give. You should have enough to express and discharge the burden for whatever ministry God has given you to fulfill. But just to accumulate wealth for its own sake is not a godly pursuit. It is not a godly pursuit. And yet what I discover, that in a lot of churches, 
That's exactly what faith is supposed to produce, wealth. My Bible says it's not a godly pursuit. So I have a problem with, with that. The great danger, according to Paul, is this, that the abundance of money replaces your need for God. The abundance of money replaces your need for God. Money has this way of entering into your soul and becoming a controlling influence. The desire for money. And according to this passage that we read in chapter 6, it gives birth to many foolish desires that lead a person into ruin and destruction. The reason that Paul says don't go for this is because wealth is uncompletely related to godliness. And second, because money, the desire for wealth, gets into your soul, it becomes an easy thing for the enemy to twist your soul and to twist your life. Uh, And we just have to be careful with the whole subject. So there's five ways that he says in Timothy that people get off the rails concerning the subject of faith. Notice as I bring this to its conclusion, because it's time to wrap this up, that in all five ways that we suggested out of 1 Timothy, none of it happened by a direct saying, I don't want to have faith anymore. In every case, faith was replaced by a desire for something else. In every case, faith was replaced by a desire for something else. And when they made those other pursuits, whether it's companionship or whether it's wealth or whether it's the thing of, of being an authority by taking on principalities and powers and feeds the ego, whatever, what we have done is we have cast off, turned aside, wandered away or erred from the faith. Let me take it back to the reason that Paul put Timothy in Ephesus. He says, get all that kind of thinking straightened out in the people's minds. True faith is always concerned with godly behavior. That's got to be the goal. True faith is always concerned with godly behavior. If at any time the emphasis shifts from godly, responsible living, whether it's the fad of spiritual warfare, or we get deeper teaching or new revelations or even signs and wonders and miracles and, or prosperity, whenever any of that overshadows godliness and responsible living, we've crossed the line. We have crossed the line. There's a strange dichotomy in the church world. On one hand, we have churches that choose to remain traditional or historic And you'll never find any excesses in them because they've chosen to be historic and they've chosen to be traditional. The problem is there can be a complete absence of the vitality of the Holy Spirit, a complete absence of the demonstration of the power of God and the moving of the Spirit, for sure. But then you have way on the other side where people are hungry for the things of God, hungry for the manifestation of the Spirit, but they quickly have got themselves sidetracked in the name of faith into prosperity. 
or they're seeking signs and wonders in an unbalanced way, or they're seeking spiritual warfare, and I can take on principle. I mean, I've heard it all. I'm sure you have. I was in a prayer meeting in, in Toronto many, many years ago, and somebody was going to challenge the devil himself to show up in the room so he could do spiritual warfare. Forget the principalities and powers. The devil himself. And the whole the prayer thing was going, I'm taking on the devil himself. I... I, I you know, command you devil to show up and we're going to do warfare right here and right now. Oh dear, I said, how did I get in that meeting? <laughs> I was supposed to be teaching at it. You know, but I've seen it all. I've seen it all. I'm sure you've seen it all as well. We need to have an emphasis on the cleansing of the heart and your conscience translating that into godly living. If not, we're headed for shipwreck. Not that I believe we are, but the warning there is in Scripture. There are three things that got to work together. Proclamation. We need to preach the Gospel and we need to teach it. Two, we need to demonstrate the power of the Gospel through miracles and signs and wonders. We need, the world needs to see people healed of their sickness. They need to see cripples get out of wheelchairs to convince them that Jesus Christ is alive. But the third aspect we dare not ignore, and that is illumination. They need to see the gospel works because you're a changed person. And the thing is, if we are praying for miracles and spiritual warfare, but our own families are falling apart underneath our feet, when our own our own children aren't following in our footsteps, when when there's there's conflict within homes and people can't even talk together and there's unresolved conflicts between people that totally nullifies before the world that we have any sense about us they look at you as signs and wonders and miracles and speaking in tongues you are a bunch of lulus if we don't have responsible godly living before their eyes and that's what first timothy is all about this is what Paul is trying to correct in the Ephesian church. It has, 1 Timothy has everything to say about maintaining a responsible and a godly witness to outsiders who can say nothing against our character. That's what 1 Timothy is all about. Hearing the voice of God leads us to righteousness. We ought to appear as the most responsible people the world has ever seen. We are to be the most responsible people the world has ever seen. So let's embrace the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let's embrace the one who empowers for miracles. And let's embrace the one who radically alters our behavior by speaking his word so that faith comes into our hearts, cleanses us, and our conscience translates that into responsible, godly living. And Paul says, when we keep that as the goal... We're doing right. If we have something else as the goal, we're off track. Keep that as the goal. Interesting, isn't it? Absolutely interesting.